newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. It's the Media Project. For more than 30 years, your window into decision-making on the news media. You know, we need one of those great voices like the guy at NBC has uh, Meet the Press, the longest-running show in television. You have a great radio voice. Are you nominating yourself? No, no, no. Let's bring in Gustina or something to do that kind of thing. 30 years. Anyway, we are here with the Media Project, folks. I'm Rex Smith, formerly editor of the Times Union, here with my colleagues, Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette of Schenectady, Barbara Lombardo, who was executive editor of the Saratogian and the Record, and here's Ian Pickus, the news director of Northeast Public Radio. We are here. We are the Media Project. How about that? I'm pretty new to the show. You guys didn't solve it in the past 30 years? <laughs> it's still a project. <laughs> it's still a project. Absolutely great. We're going to issue a report at some point. <laughs> It'll be like Congress. It'll be controversial enough that we'll see if the report will be accepted in court or not. You know, how useful is it after all? Anyway, one of the things that has changed over the last 30 years, as a matter of fact, is the way that we cover crime. Or uh, maybe it hasn't so much. Uh, when I was a young reporter in a, in a big newsroom, there were a couple of people who would call up the police precincts one after another, dial up and say, Hey, Jimmy O'Neill, I hear anything going on, Sergeant. And you would get so close to the cops that uh, you were almost one of them. And I think that's not the case anymore, right? Like, Ian, you have people now who cover crime for you who don't do that, I presume. No, it's gotten a lot different. I mean, we've done our share of kind of ride-alongs and that traditional type of story, but I think our generation has, with some justification, grown more skeptical of police said X, police said Y. There have just been too many high-profile examples of the police saying X and it not being true when you see the video later. So I think that style might be a little old fashioned now. And, uh, you know, you still are relying on on sources and that kind of thing um, to tell you what's going on in a lot of cases. But having the chummy pop over to City Hall or grab the blotter thing. Yeah, that's it's all gone electric. There's still some issues with this, though, because people are um, who are covering the cops there's still a tendency, especially at the at the local levels, to accept only what the police are telling them and not attempt to tell the other side of the story. That's a management decision, really. And there's a lot of reliance now on the police departments providing press releases, and it's more difficult than ever to figure out what else might have happened that needs to be covered. So that's the still challenging part of it. It's much better than when, and I can remember first getting to the Saratogian when the police reporter at the time was super chummy with the cops and was kind of a junior police officer. 
There should be some adversarial nature to it. And I, I can remember having to get our hands on police body camera footage for a story we were following. And it was in the digital era and we were allowed to get our hands on it. But we did have to drive about 30 minutes to the precinct to get it on a CD. They would not give us the file. And that was a purposely done hurdle. So, yeah. I mean, historically, newspapers consider themselves newspapers of record where we would print every misdemeanor, every violation, and every felony. Then we got to a point where we would do all the felonies and interesting misdemeanors. And we wouldn't, and most of the times we would print these arrests, but we would not print the dispositions of these cases. And, and again, I agree with Barbara, we get these press releases in later years by police public relations officials. And you would never be able to talk to the detective in charge to really find out what they think happened with this case. So it's always been adversarial. I spent a fair amount of my time at the Saratoga Springs Police Station. That is an arrestee, by the way. <laughs> but, but, but it was always adversarial. It was always difficult to extract information about them, about interesting cases. I think what we're finding nowadays, especially with the digital realm, is that people get arrested for minor things and they find these arrests follow them the rest of their lives. And how fair is that, especially when we don't cover the disposition of the case, whether or not it was dismissed or resulted in a plea? Well, and one of the other issues is this over-reliance on crime coverage in journalism. It leads to the incorrect conclusion that crime is rampant. In fact, crime last year went down significantly. Uh, that is a politically awkward reality for politicians who seek office vowing to fight crime, when in fact it has been dropping dramatically in the United States. And it's far lower than it was 20 years ago. But the focus on crime, I think, in the media is partly because it's easy to cover because you get this stuff. And especially on television, you know, you put some good looking young person in front of yellow police tape with the wind blowing their hair in the breeze and you have a story. This is television, folks. It doesn't really have to be something that is actually live, local, and late-breaking. You're right about it being easy. There are still small papers. There's weeklies up my way that will, and the daily paper, will print the police, the quote-unquote police blotter, which is just the listing of the name of the person and what they were charged with, uh, maybe their age, and... Uh, not a lot of information uh, more than that, but those are some of the most, still, some of the most popular items for people to look for. Yeah, and let's talk they see about their those, those There's my neighbor. Somebody sees yeah. their neighbor in there. Oh, or wow. it's Or there's been burglaries in their neighborhood, which I think that's legitimate I interest. I think it's legitimate as well. But let's talk about these mugshot galleries. Oh. Newspapers for a long time were printing. Oh, that's a, we're, we're, which, high traffic generator. But was basically for entertainment. People yeah. would you would take a picture of someone on the worst day of their life and subject them to harassment or the criticism of the entire community for what? Some people make t shirts out of their mugshots. <laughs> and campaign posters. You know, the fact is that you have to wonder, what is the purpose of that? Well, in those days, that was because we had, in the early days of digital journalism, we believed that traffic alone was worth, uh, was valuable. Now, you, you, we found out, our ad sales department told us, well, you can't just sell traffic alone. It's actually engagement that you need. And so, miraculously, that became less newsworthy as it was less profitable. Kelly McBride of the Pointer Institute, this journalism think tank and Florida reports that there has been a 700% increase in the number of crime stories in the news over the last three decades, even when the rate of crime is declining. Now, I don't know how she got that number, but assuming that's true, the increase in the amount of 
crime coverage. I wonder if that's just because it's easy and because as staffs have shrunk, this is how you fill the news hole. It's also compelling. You know, anyone can understand the black and white of a murder, a shooting, something burning down. You know, people have a a prurient uh, interest in it. But we got a complaint the other day that I had to laugh about. Somebody wrote in and um, said, you guys, all you cover is murders. And I've oh. I've been in so many meetings here about how we are not covering crime enough. We're spending an hour uh, at noon on city council meetings and zoning laws, and uh, we're we're kind of missing the more exciting stuff that people actually care about. So I think there's some human nature at play here, too. Absolutely. I remember having this conversation about 15 years ago here in this studio (laughs) about how little crime coverage there was on WAMC. And in fact, uh, uh, this report from the Pointer Institute uh, notes that public media outlets traditionally avoid those kinds of stories. And I think it seems to me like you're doing more of it than you used to, but I welcome to that, actually, because it seems to me that there was an intent to avoid newsworthy crime 15 years ago in this news organization where we sit today. I think it's interesting to see what's happening with the Times Union and their decision to not print the names of a defendant in the story while it's in process. There was an awkward instance where there was a, a misdemeanor a, a mm-hmm. right to report an animal crime, and the Times Union didn't use the name. The Gazette did. Uh, yeah, right. but I went to the Gazette to find out who it was and <laughs> because you want to know. And if I was the person who was described unnamed, to me, that put a burden on everybody else who could fall under that category. Exactly. It, it, yeah. Instead of being specific about who it was, and you could say in the story it's a misdemeanor, but to not identify that person cast a shadow on everybody else, the many, many other people who could have been categorized the same way. Very hard decision, I think, if you're the editor making that, because if it's a, and and I think we've all had instances where we've had to make decisions about things that were, are questionable, like, well, here's an example. Colony Police put out a press release involving seven men who were charged with soliciting prostitution, they, or patronizing prostitutes, sorry, and um, a couple of them were newsworthy. But the other five guys got their name included in the press release who were just ordinary Joes. I mean, one of them was a major uh, property developer. One was the head of a private school. And so here's the dilemma. Do you use all seven names or do you only use the names of the guys who are newsworthy? And how do you decide? One guy was kind of right on the – we had used him in the paper before for a couple things, but he wasn't real newsworthy. That was a hard decision, you know. Yeah, we, we faced decisions about where did the crime occur. So uh, there was, years ago, a case where somebody who was um, the head of a nonprofit organization that dealt with alcohol abuse and uh, things like that was arrested for DWI, but not in our area. It was outside of our area, but somebody alerted us to it. So we, in the newsroom, would never have even known about it to publish the story. Now we know about it. Do we publish it? It's the only person from our whole community in I don't know how long that we're telling the public that they had a DWI and Very what, what do you end up doing? I think we decided we did need to do it and because of the nature of their job. But it was a tough decision. You know, can we talk about federal crimes as well? Because I, I, I think that disproportionately affects um, people of color who get arrested for low-level misdemeanors a lot of time and they get their, their photos, their mugshots on the front page of the newspaper. 
Meanwhile, um, a lot of these white collar crimes that end up in federal court, uh, we can't, we don't get mugshots of them. They never get, they don't get the kind of coverage that a lot of these low level crimes get. And it gives the the populace a, an impression that um, people of color are more likely to commit crimes than, you know, upstanding people from uh, suburban America. It's, it, I've, uh, it's always bothered me. If you're going to use, don't use any mugshots at all. Although we know as someone who, uh, when you run a digital website, you need a piece of art to go with every story. And a mugshot was perfect for that. Boy, that's a really good point. Yeah, the, the disproportionate level of, or people who are, uh, unfortunately, get their photograph. I mean, you, your point about photography being an aid to coverage. There was a civil case here involving a, a bunch of defendants, and only one of them had a prominent lawyer who led him into the courtroom right past a bevy of waiting reporters. So the every, reverse perp walk. Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, the, the defendant felt, oh, this is good. My lawyer's going to walk in with me. But what it meant was the reporters and photographers all jumped to attention when they saw a lawyer they recognized. And that photograph ran with every story for the next several months when this came up uh, because the lawyer wanted to get his picture in the paper. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of inequity. Yes. yes. And I think that even though uh, the types of police reporting that we talked about earlier, we're glad to see that kind of gone, largely gone, that I think there is definitely a place for a beat reporter whose job includes police courts, crime, maybe with the broader title of public safety coverage. And that's really important so that you do have somebody who can develop some kind of relationships with the, albeit adversarial relationships with the with law enforcement, with the courts, with experts in those fields to be able to tell the routine stories as we deem them newsworthy and then the bigger picture for the trends for your community. Right. So anyway, one of the things that w this will lead us to our next topic, one of the things that is interesting is that uh, a lot of these crime stories are the kinds of things that you give young reporters. You kind of make your bones, as they say, with cops reporting sometimes. But here's an opportunity for young journalists who are college students to actually get some experience. SUNY, State University of New York, is launching a system-wide effort to have college students produce local news. This is really kind of a, a remarkable situation. Uh, because uh, with the cutbacks in local newsrooms throughout the country, this notion of having aspiring journalists, student journalists, uh, go to work in newsrooms with the support of their uh, universities, getting academic credit for it, sounds like, in some respects, a really good idea, right? You all, well, two of you in this room are teaching. Is this a welcome development for professors and students alike or not? It sounds like a terrific idea, and like a lot of things, the devil is in the details, so that there are a lot of challenges associated with making this work as I think it's intended. I know the professor at the uh, University of Albany, so does, so does Ian, who's in charge of this program for next semester, and she's in the process now of trying to find news organizations in the area that would be interested in receiving polished work from her students. How does it get polished? She And she would do all the polishing. Oh. She don't, so the, the uh, teacher would be the editor. So she not only polishes, she's doing the assigning and the working with the reporter and or reporter slash student, mm -hmm. um, sending them back, uh, doing the re rewrites with that person, and turning into the uh, media outlet what's supposed to be a publishable or arable piece of work. 
Well, that avoids actually part of the labor issue here, because under federal labor law, then that person wouldn't be supervised by the editor's producers at the news outlet. It would be by the professor, right? And therefore, the assignment would probably come from the professor. This isn't breaking news. This is stuff then that they can work on, and it's just presented to the news outlet, right? Right. So the piece would be presented to the news outlet, but it would be um, assigned with discussion with the news outlet so that it's something that they want. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. This is pattern on something similar that happens in the state of Vermont with the universities there. Um, I think different SUNYs in New York are doing different things with this. But again, yeah, the idea is to create something that uh, outlets can take or not take. I, I think in Vermont, they post content on a uh, on their their website, a centralized website, and newspapers can go in and say, "Oh, I love that story on you know the status of agriculture in Vermont or something like that." Again, um, it's a laudable effort by the uh, by SUNY Central, um, but um, and I and it's developing fairly quickly. We'll see what happens going forward as um, as it takes shape. The idea again is to have the professor do the the polishing the the crafting it to make sure things are correct of course as we know everyone who sits in a newsroom is going to take a second and third look at it yeah, too right well if there are those people <laughs> if, if <laughs> anybody's people. there <laughs> hello so it's, it's an interesting program because the premise is to help uh, local news outlets increase their amount of local news and at the same time it's providing real life experience for a student to sort of real life experience because they're not in the newsroom. And some 21-year-olds or 20-year-olds are really capable. Uh, I mean, and I think many of us uh, found our internships at that age to be just essential to uh, to launching our careers, Uh, no matter how embarrassed we are looking back at those clips, you know, and being under our violence. But it's a wonderful thing, and the decline of internships in recent years, the lack of availability because newsrooms haven't had the money to support them anymore than they've had the money to support their staffs, and there's been a problem with uh, assuming you get free labor from young people. So that's been a problem. This has been, this is a, a hopeful sign, but not without problems. Ian, in your newsroom, you have particular production needs. I would think that getting a young person trained to meet your standards would be a pretty difficult chore, right? Yeah, and um, I've been on all sides of this, so I can see everyone's interest sort of equally here. And yeah, when we have an intern, they're thrown in and they have a set amount of time uh, to learn all of this jargon, to learn all of the tech, uh, to really understand what kind of stuff we do. And then at the very end, knock on wood, they've got an arable piece that has been worked and reworked and tracked and retracked and mixed and remixed. And at the end of the internship, we air their story and they get this great clip uh, (laughs) to take with them into the future. And when you have a really good intern who wants to go down that road, they often make something that could even be better than our average story because they've had so much oversight and so long to work on it. And I think So if they take advantage of it, it's a great situation. The hard part of that is, you know, not every intern has that ambition. And separately, it's a a huge staff commitment to, 
you know, put aside your own duties and work with someone who is just figuring out how to use a microphone <laughs> and going back to basics. Yeah, can I put a plug in for the New York Press Association? We have paid summer internships. We pay our interns $2,600 for a summer of work. We make sure we pay them minimum wage. Uh, and we, throughout the state, our interns go right into the newsrooms and produce good work. They sit next to the reporters or they were photographers as well. So um, I'm a believer that you need to pay uh, interns, especially during the summer, because that's the way you're going to get a diverse reporter pool. Because if only rich kids can do internships, then we're only going to get rich kids as reporters. I could do a testimonial for that NYPA program. It was fantastic uh, for the Saratogian for a long time. I, it was maybe the best kept secret in internships around, but um, it's a serious internship and that the newspaper has to be willing to support that person's application to be an intern there. And um, it's a great help. It, it really helped produce some uh, promising reporters. Yeah. So we'll watch and see what's going on. But uh, thank you, SUNY, for uh, making the effort in any case. One more word on this is just that, you know, I think the idea that SUNY has campuses in so many places that have essentially lost local news. Uh, so if this is a, a corrective to that in any way, then that is laudable. All right. Start hooking them up with places, Judy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Let's see if we can do that. Actually, I neglected to say your current position. Judy's vice president of the New York Press Association, which is why to our listeners. She is in the middle of this thing and hopefully getting some of these young people placed. That would be a great thing. Uh, you know, we need to talk a little bit about it and from the local to the national. Uh, you may not, if folks listening, have any awareness of the name Charles Littlejohn. Uh, no reason really why you should, but it is Charles Littlejohn, who was a consultant uh, to the Internal Revenue Service, who leaked Donald Trump's tax returns, which resulted in uh, major investigative findings for the New York Times and ProPublica. And now uh, Charles Littlejohn has been sentenced to five years in prison uh, because he was uh, he because he violated the confidentiality of federal tax laws. At the same time, he clarified. Uh, the abuse of the tax code by extremely wealthy people made it clear that uh, Donald Trump had not uh, paid any taxes in years. So, you know, it is it is just one of those uh, difficult situations, isn't it? I felt terrible for the guy. I loved his name because it was so Robin Hoodish. That he's <laughs> stealing shot. from the rich and giving and explaining to the rest of us what's going on. Um, I wasn't clear on the stories, and I tried to find it, but I didn't, was how he finally came out as the person who... Uh, I know there was an investigation into where did this leak come from, and I don't know whether he stepped forward or they tracked it down, um, but I would feel terrible as the news outlet that was using his information under the promise of anonymity. Which the news organization, I'm sure, did its best to protect. I mean, even as the New York Times, for example, was doing editorials about uh, how this shows the uh, uh, you know inappropriateness of the tax loopholes, uh, the editorial page had no idea who it was who was doing this. So um, the the difficulty is that we protect sources all the time, and, and we reporters have even gone to jail to protect sources, but when they are found, they don't have the protection uh, that uh, we can give. There's no protection we can give them. It's actually. the severity of the sentence, I think, that was so heartbreaking to me. Uh, this He didn't do this for personal gain. He did this because he thought it was the right thing to do. 
and I worry that it will have uh, you know it will discourage other people, good-hearted people who believe in um, the public's right to know. They will not come forward like they like we hope they would. And the court could have done a far more lenient sentence uh, as a show of the good that the revealing of this information did. We need leakers. I mean, it's as simple as that. The House Ways and Means took effectively five years to get Donald Trump's tax returns, the, the committee. So you're absolutely right. We need to make sure there is not a chilling effect. And yeah, if I had some documents and I saw what happened to this fellow, I would be thinking twice about it. Yeah, absolutely. And while we're on the national level, before we go away, we need to uh, take note of the hugely newsworthy, <clears throat> supposedly, interview with Vladimir Putin. Oh, I'm sorry. We're out of time. <laughs> <laughs> Vladimir Putin, who has not given an interview to a Western journalist for a long time, has instead given an interview to Tucker Carlson. Who is not a journalist. Yeah, yeah, he likes to go. jail real journalists. Yes. Yeah, poor Ivan yeah. Gersovich, still in jail almost a year now, a, a Wall Street Journal reporter. Uh, there's a Radio Free Europe reporter in, in jail in Russia. And, and most of the legitimate reporters who from Russia have had to flee the country because he does not, um, because he's such a repressive dictator. So why do you suppose Tucker Carlson, with his little uh, media company that he's created, gets Vladimir Putin and other reporters who want to talk to him don't. Could it be because he's prone to accept the propaganda line of things? Uh, <laughs> don't forget, he did a week in, in Orban's Hungary of primetime broadcasts uh, on Fox, so he's got a track record. I will say, I think any Western journalist who can get a sit-down with Putin, great. Uh, we're not sending our best. <laughs> and we're not sending journalists. He's a host. Let's call him exactly. what he is. And it wasn't for a lack of journalists trying to get a, a, a real interview with Putin. I would love to see a Leslie Stahl 60 Minutes interview of Vladimir Putin. I would not miss it. That would be fun. All right. In our imagination, we can No, I'd love this. to see an Ian Pickus interview. There we go. Oh, boy. <laughs> That'd be great. This is the end of the Media Project for this week, but you can hear us every week at this time, or you can download us anytime at WAMC.org. Ian Pickus, Barbara Lombardo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. We thank you for listening. We thank our producer, Dave Gustina, for helping us out, and we hope you join us again next week at the Media Project. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Ding, ling, ding, ling, 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 ling. Now, newspapermen are such interesting people. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith, Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, Barbara Lombardo, the former editor of the Saratogia and a journalism professor at the University at Albany, and WAMC News Director Ian Pickus. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm your producer, David Gustina. Thanks for listening. Now, publishers of such interesting people, their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go. 
To working folks, for readers, and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising. Get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>